0: Okay. Doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, um, Thank you. Um, So uh, we did a definition at the beginning. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. And then point A was the doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed in Scripture, and we went through a number of those passages that indicate a plurality of persons in God. Even at Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then a uh, more complete revelation in the New Testament, point 2, um, with a number of passages talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and then there were three statements. This, again, we did um, in the previous two weeks. Three statements that summarize the biblical teaching. Number one, God is three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each is distinct from the other, and each person is fully God. Trent, I lost my um, uh, that screen. Each person is fully God. Um, so God the Father is God, uh, and God the Son is fully God, and we went through some verses on that, and the Holy Spirit is also uh, joined with the Father and Son, like in phrases like baptizing them in the name in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit in the one name, uh, joining them together as having full deity. So the Holy Spirit is fully God, and then um, there is one God, and so Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, how do we put that together? Simplistic solutions deny one strand of biblical teaching, and we went through how if. Uh, If people deny that God is three persons, then you get one person in God, uh, but that doesn't... And then it's simple. Um, uh, Or if you deny the second one, you deny that uh, the Son and the Spirit are fully God, then you just have the Father being God and there's there's no mental puzzle to figure out. Or if you have... if you deny that there's one God, then you get three gods, and that's an error. But then the statements aren't hard to put together. But if you affirm all three, it's hard to put them together, and people puzzle over that. So uh, that's the question. And then we talked about some analogies, and analogies maybe help us a little bit, but they have shortcomings, and uh, they no analogy adequately teaches about the Trinity, and and they are mis- they are misleading in different ways. Then has God always been Trinity? Yes, uh, God eternally and necessarily exists as Trinity. Um, And uh, then we talked last week about these errors that came up where different teachers in the history of the church said, oh, I've got it figured out. Here's the answer. And then they started teaching something that was really uh, eventually rejected by the rest of the uh, leadership or the rest of the churches at the time. And so through the period up to 325 A.D., Council of Nicaea. In the years preceding that, there were lots of disputes and debates and discussions and arguments about the Trinity. And then uh, the Nicene Creed rejected a number of these wrong teachings in 325. And then 381, again, at uh, Constantinople, um, there was a, another church council, and they added on a paragraph about the Holy Spirit, but they again rejected these teachings. What was rejected? What was rejected, one, was this idea of modalism, that there's one person who appears to us in three different modes. Um, and it has some, I don't, look, I didn't make up these names. I'm not responsible for them. But it's been, the same wrong, era, wrong uh, doctrine has been called by three different things modalism, or Sabellianism after a man named Sibelius, uh, or um, modalistic monarchianism. Uh, and And the idea of modes was this idea that one person can act in different modes or different ways. like I, I use Jack for an example Jack can be a father or a husband or an elder, I guess or, or a son or you can have different ways you have different roles that you play or different modes, but Jack's still just one person. And some people said, well oh, that's what the Trinity is like. God acts like the Father in the Old Testament. He acts like the Son in the Gospels. He acts like the Spirit in the Epistles and acts in the Epistles. But it's just one person. And uh, yet the church said, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. That doesn't make sense because we have Jesus praying to the Father. We have the Father sending the Son into the world. It's two distinct persons. And then Jesus said, if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. That's another person. So in order to be faithful to those passages, then... Uh, the church said, we will not accept this modalism, this idea that God is just one person. We have to say that God is three persons. Now, uh, Mary Jane, are you here? Yeah. Afterward, Mary Jane asked me a really good question last week. And this happens. People ask, uh, they come up to me after, hey, what about this? And then I say, oh, I wish I had thought about asking that question, because here's the question. When Jesus was praying, um, to whom was he praying? Well, he was praying to the Father. Okay, then Mary Jane said, well, then wouldn't people think this? If he's praying to the Father, and the Son and the Father are one being, then wasn't he praying to himself? Okay. And my answer to that is no. He wasn't praying to himself. He was praying to the Father. Well, aren't the Father and the Son the one God? Aren't they the same being? Yes, they are. But there are different persons. And so the different persons do different things. And praying and hearing prayers are personal activities. And so we have different activities for the different persons, but in the one God. And so, um, but that question... It was a good way of thinking about these differences. That we, we have to maintain that there are personal differences. So here's another way of saying that. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the father, And then Jesus talks about the father sending him into the world. Uh, and if the father did not send, for God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. He's been sent from the father. Well, okay, the father sent the son into the world. Did the father send himself then? No. He sent the Son. Are they the same being? Yes. Then why didn't he send himself? Because they're different persons. Am I making sense? Okay. So then that's the puzzle. How how can they be the same being but different persons? Well, we keep on working and trying to understand that even though we don't understand it fully. Okay, so modalism was this idea there's just one person. And the church said no uh this this we can accept this and and modalism was seen in the um, ah, modalism is seen today in this this uh these the groups called the oneness Pentecostals, and um they are they're or they're called the united Pentecostal church and I'm sorry the word Pentecostal is in their title, but it just is um, they're unlike all the other Pentecostals in the world with whom we would share a lot of beliefs in the truthfulness of Scripture. But this is a particular subgroup, a particular denomination, and they're nicknamed the Jesus-only people, and that they are modalists. They just think that they would say that Jesus is praying to himself. See, because they would say there's just one person. It's, it's, and uh, um, At least I think they'd have to say that. I don't know how. and, and that it, Yeah, because they would say that was just an illusion um, an, an to teach us something about prayer or something like that. Uh, so um, uh, they are kind of around, uh, but I think that's a mistake, to deny that there are different persons. The shortcoming of modalism, it denies personal relationship in the Trinity. Then the other error was Arianism, and it uh, denies the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to let me uh, draw these up here again. I don't usually do this much review, but... These, these kind of titles and ideas are new, and so I'm going over them again. Um, uh, Dick and Todd, can you read the... So I'm not blocked. Can I move this at all? You, you, okay, how's that? Okay, and all right. You guys, I'll set with that. Uh, how's that? Okay, so a true doctrine of the Trinity has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three persons and one god now modalism just says there's one person and he sometimes looks like looks like the father and sometimes looks like the son you think it's and sometimes looks like the holy spirit but it really is just one person marker died on me okay and arianism would say that god the father is just god equals the father and there's a created being greater than any any other person but a created being that's the son and a created being that's the holy spirit but these were created they didn't always exist. And that, that's the heresy of Arianism, and that's what Jehovah's Witnesses would hold today, and that's why they aren't uh, you know, part of Orthodox Christianity. Well, that's Arianism. Fourth-century Bishop Arius, who taught the Son was created, and we talked about they had a misunderstanding of these phrases that talked about the only begotten Son in some translations. I think it means that there was a father-son relationship forever between the Father and the Son, but that that relationship never began, and it didn't mean created. So Arianism was defeated at the Council of Nicaea 325 and Constantinople 381. And the Nicene Creed said, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. And in doing that, in the course of that debate, they were saying, whatever this begetting means, it never began. It never started. It was eternal. Light of light, God, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And they say whatever begotten means, it doesn't mean created. Arius, you're wrong. We won't. We won't. Uh, we won't accept this view. Not made, being of one substance with the Father. And we talked then about this word homoousias, being or one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This is the Nicene Creed, which has been said by many, many churches weekly or occasionally uh, since uh, 325 A.D. And I look back at that and I say, I'm just thankful that from the end of the New Testament, New Testament writings were finished about 90 or 100 A.D. It took them 225 years to, I mean, they started out thinking, okay, God is three persons and there's one God and each person is fully God. They kind of agreed with those things because they're there on the surface of the Bible. But then when they tried to put them together they started to say, how could this be? How could this be? And you get modalism, and you get Arianism, you get these suggested solutions that are wrong. And I'm glad that the church took that 225 years, and actually more than that, because from 325 to 381, the Arians kept arguing. So they took 280 years to figure this out and kind of get it summarized in a way that they could say, okay, we're all going to agree with this, and you minority group that you you who don't agree, I'm sorry, we're not going to give any teaching positions or any leadership positions in the church. You can't be pastors, you can't be elders if you don't hold to homo usios. And that's how doctrinal disputes get settled, ultimately. The churches say, oh, there's this different teaching coming in. Do we accept it? Do we not accept it? Finally, they get a statement where they get some words that the other side cannot agree to. And they could not the Aryans could not agree same substance or one substance, homoousios, with the Father. They said, you see, they, that this, the Son was created. And so they would say, similar. A similar being to God, but not the same. And uh, so they were out. And that was good for the church. Being of one substance or homoousios, with the Father, by whom all things were made. And the Nicene Creed then affirmed homoousias, same being or substance, one being or substance, not homoiousios which is similar being or substance. And I mentioned last week, there's just one letter difference in spelling. Just the Greek letter iota in English would be the letter I. And some people were saying, well, what are you doing? You're making a division in the church for one little tiny letter, just for an iota. And yet the difference in meaning was very substantial because... The Arians were saying, similar to the Father, but created. And they were saying, there was a time when the Son was not, when there was just God the Father. And the church said, no, you've got to say same substance or same being um, as the Father. And so we've got in this circle all three persons, but each one being fully God. Then, as I said in 381, the Council of uh, Constantinople came along and added a paragraph on the Holy Spirit. Not not only do I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, but in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So they said the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped and glorified uh, with the Father and Son, meaning the Holy Spirit is also fully God who spoke by the prophets, meaning the Holy Spirit was active in giving us the inspiration of Scripture. Now, that's where we ended last week, and that was kind of review. There were two other wrong views that came along that were different from Arianism, but they're related. Subordinationism held that the Son was eternal and divine, but not equal to the Father in being or attributes. So the Arians got defeated. That said the Son was created. So then some other people said, well, what about this? Let's try this idea. One God... But the Son and the Holy Spirit have a subordinate being. They're, they're one God, but less powerful, maybe, less, uh, oh, I don't know, having uh, lesser being than the Father, and they're deriving their being from the Father in some way. The Son was eternal and divine, but not equal to the Father in being or attributes. What's the problem with this? You don't have the Son and the Holy Spirit being fully God, then. Um, that there's some way in which they're inferior to the Father. I make the F for Father really big. So that's subordinationism. And, again, that's a wrong view because we want to affirm that each one is fully God. And then there's another one, and this... This is really very different, but I'm just putting it in here. And that is the idea of adoptionism. And that is that God the Father always existed, and Jesus was an ordinary human being until he was about 30, and then God just said, oh, I think I'll make you God as well as man, and I'll make you my son. I'll adopt you as my son, and I'll give you great powers. Well, that's a very liberal view you don't have you don't have Jesus being God from the moment uh, he's conceived, or you don't have him being God in his childhood, and uh, that's adoptionism. I won't go into that very much, but again, that's a wrong idea. Okay, we've got one more thing to deal with before we leave the Nicene Creed and how they resolved all this, and that is the Filioque clause. This sounds really interesting, I know. But there's a payoff to it, so just be patient with me here a minute. Filioque means and from the Son in Latin. The que means and, and this is a form of son that means from the Son. And from the Son clause. In the Nice Creed, when it said, You believe in the Father, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. What this means is, way back before the world was created, before the world was created, I'm going to put here New Testament, Old Testament, here's the life of Christ, Back here here's Genesis 1 with the creation. Back here before creation they were saying that the relationships among Father, Son and Holy Spirit in the Trinity were like this. The Father had authority over the Son, and I think that's true, and the, I'm going to give some verses for that later in that the, the Father was Father, and the Son was Son, and the Father predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, and the Father chose us, Son, before the foundation of the world. The creation, the Father creates through the Son. So I I think there's a difference in relationship, though they're equal in being. And they were saying, well, not only... And then there's a relationship with the Father having authority over the Spirit. and, And the Nicene Creed, and then at Constantinople in 381... They didn't say anything about the Son and the Spirit, and gradually over time people were saying that the Holy Spirit proceedeth from the Father and the Son, and from the Son. And so the question was, let me put that little arrow in a different color. The question was, is there a leadership or authority or guiding role that the Son has with regard to the Holy Spirit, before the world was created. Hmm. That's pretty obscure, I know. But I think it's right. Uh, I'll explain why in a minute. This phrase, and the Son, filioque, was endorsed by the Pope in 1017, though it had been talked about earlier, and it caused a split between the Eastern Orthodox and the Western churches in 1054 A.D. because these Eastern churches, which would be Greek Orthodox, Russian today, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, all those Orthodox churches, they said to the Pope, you don't have the right to do this. But the Pope said, yes, I do. And so a lot of it had to do with uh, ecclesiastical power or authority and who was going to be right and who was going to be wrong. And so these Eastern churches said to the Pope, I'm sorry, we're not going to follow your leadership anymore. And so in 1054 A.D., there was a split. And historians call that the Great Schism. And even today, now there's a Greek Orthodox church with a gold dome up here right on Cactus, isn't there? Just less than a mile from our building the greek orthodox church is subject to the pope because there was this division between east and west and the eastern churches eastern orthodox churches went their own way and they have their own leadership and they don't relate to the uh, to the pope in rome so long before the reformation started in 1517 There was a split as the first split in the organizational unity of the church in history, and that was in 1054, and it's never been repaired. They've never been reunited into one group anymore. Okay? The interesting thing is, it had to do with a really, really, really obscure thing. That is, what was the relationship between the Son and the Holy Spirit before creation? As far as I know... Here's the number of Bible verses that explicitly address that. Zero. So there was a split over an obscure point of doctrine about which the Bible says nothing directly. You figure it out. I don't know why. It was has to do I think all, and, and okay, now if I say I step back and I looked at the whole church whole course of church history in terms of God's providential direction. I think actually it was the beginning of something that happened later in the Reformation in that there were a lot of different organizations formed and God was protecting us from one worldwide church government, which I think, um, um, even I think Roman Catholics today would say when, when the Roman Catholic Church had too much power before the Reformation, there was a lot of corruption in it because it didn't have any anybody challenging it effectively, and so I don't think this was the this is the worst thing. And uh, among Orthodox churches today, you get you get some that are Bible believing and, and teach a genuine gospel, but in a lot of those churches, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, things. Honestly, sadly, I think there's a lot of just tradition and spiritual deadness. Um, but well, that's another story. Um, the Western Church that, that kept on this form proceeds from the Son. The Western Church seems to be correct on this. And the reason is that when you come over into history and how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit related to the world later, let me get a little darker marker here. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Later in the history of the world, the Father sent the Son into the world to die for our sins. And then there are verses that say, not only did the Father send the Holy Spirit, but the Son also sent the Holy Spirit, like at Pentecost. So when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus sends the Holy Spirit from the Father, And then, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, John 16, 7, that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. If I go, I will send him to you. But then there are other verses that talk about the Father sending the Spirit. So they both do this. What I would say then is, if in time the Son sends the Holy Spirit into the world, that reflects an eternal difference in relationship so that there was a leadership or guidance or authority function that the Son had regarding the Holy Spirit eternally. And so the phrase that was used was proceeds from the Father and and the Son, and from the Son. I think that's right. Interestingly enough, when I taught on the Doctrine of the Trinity a few years ago um, and had a Greek Orthodox priest from uh, this area in my class... The edge of this is cardboard, not uh... <laughs> I, and I had a Greek a Bible believing Greek Orthodox priest in my class He said to me afterward, "You know Wayne, I think you're right on this. I don't want I'm you know on this Filioque uh, thing um, so he wants us to affirm what difference and led to the split of Greek Orthodox uh, historically. Um, it's not a big deal in a way, it's kind of obscure, but when people look back on the history of the church, they said... You know what? By connecting the Son, who is the Word of God sent into the world, the Son with the Spirit, the Western Church guaranteed that thinking and intellectual reasoning, which is connected a lot to the Son being the revelation of God, and spirituality, the subjective process of our relating to God in our spirit, Thinking and spirituality were connected in the Western Church. They weren't separated from each other in people's lives. And so, um, as opposed to in the Eastern Church, there was a tendency to make spirituality something mystical and separate from our theological reasoning um, because the Spirit were not so directly connected. I don't know if that really is the way it worked out, uh, but may have been. Okay. So that's the filioque clause. All right, review of errors. Modalism, God is one person, denies that God is three persons. Arianism, the Son is a created being, denies that each person is fully God. It says the Son and the Holy Spirit are not truly God, but they were created. And then there's one other error we could think of, and that would be tritheism. That is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three separate gods, but then there's not one God. Now, Animistic or native religions in some tribes and things might have polytheism, and they might tend in this way. That's not been a that's not been historically a heresy that anybody has held to in the history of the church that I know of, uh, because the emphasis on being one God, God being one God, is so strong. Okay, those are the errors. Now. Why is it important that we not hold to these errors, but that we hold to this idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, but they are all the same being? Why is that important? Now, I'm going to just read a paragraph from my book, Systematic Theology, because I summarize a number of things here. Why was the church so concerned about the doctrine of the trinity? Why did they spend the whole part of the great part of the of the 4th century arguing about this? Is it really essential to hold to the full deity of the son and the holy spirit? Yes it is, for this teaching has implications for the very heart of the christian faith. First, the atonement is at stake. If Jesus is merely a created being and not fully god, then it's hard to see how he, a creature, could bear the full wrath of God against all our sins. Could any creature, no matter how great, really save us? So Arianism that says that the Son was created, it tends toward having a Son that isn't, that isn't God and therefore can't really save us. And that's why Jehovah's Witnesses don't have a doctrine of salvation by faith alone. They salvation by works because they don't have a Savior who is God and who can save us. So the atonement is at stake. You give up the Trinity, you give up the atonement. Who else gave up the Trinity historically? The Unitarians in New England, for instance. And and they became just classically liberal, not believing much of anything. So when people give up the doctrine of the Trinity, they tend to fall into error. Second, justification by faith alone is threatened if we deny the full deity of the son this is seen in the teaching of the jehovah's witnesses who do not believe in justification by faith alone if jesus is not fully god we would doubt whether we can really trust him to save us completely could we depend on any creature fully for our salvation see and I, i'm going i just have to draw arianism up here again because this is what's this is the challenge all the time saying that jesus is not fully god Son, Holy Spirit, created beings. That's Arianism. But if you have that, then then can you really trust this creature to save you completely if he's not fully God? So that's at stake. Third, avoiding idolatry is at stake. Because if Jesus is not truly God, should we pray to him or worship him? How can you sing praise to Jesus if he's a creature? How could you worship him if he's a creature? Who but an infinite, and how could you pray to him? How could you pray to Jesus if he's not an infinite, omniscient God who can hear and respond to all the prayers of God's people? If Jesus is merely a creature, no more great, it would be idolatry to worship him. Yet the New Testament commands us to do so. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. Um, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. of Things in earth and things under the earth. Um, uh, every, uh, and, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then... Um, um, Let's see. So atonement is at stake. Justification is at stake. Avoiding idolatry is at stake. And then the independence of God is at stake because if you don't have personal relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally, then God is, God doesn't have, God, how can God have interpersonal relationships with himself? He needs to create us then. He needs us. He depends on us for relationship and therefore he's not independent. And then the personal nature of God is at stake. If there's no Trinity, then you've got no interpersonal relationships eternally before creation. and it's genuine it's hard God could be genuine personal without having those relationships. And then um, there's the question of unity in the universe. If there is not perfect plurality and unity in God, then we have no basis for thinking there can be ultimate unity among the diverse elements of the universe. And then there's diversity in the universe. See, I I talked about this a little bit last time. We can tolerate the fact and rejoice in the fact that we're different people with different colors of clothing and different hairstyles and, (laughs) and different things that we like to do and different music preferences and different food preferences and different gifts in the church that we minister to one another. And we don't find ourselves threatened by that difference because we understand that out of very different people, God makes unity. And I think that's part of God reflecting, having us reflect his nature, in that he made us to be very different and then unified in him. It's the basis ultimately for racial and ethnic unity in the church as well, in that out of many diverse peoples and nations, God makes one church. And we can rejoice in that as opposed to the direction of the world that's just to segment and fragment into just people like themselves all the time. The church isn't that way. So why is it? That's because God is three persons who do different things and have different activities, but they're one God. So God can make us as different persons and yet have one body in Christ and unity in the church. So diversity and unity in the universe. Christians in the doctrine of the Trinity have an explanation for that. Non-Christians say, well, there are all these different be- people and different things in the universe. How can they all be united? They just fragment. A non-Christian view can't explain this. So Herman Bavinck, who was a, a, a Dutch theologian and died in the 1920s, Bavinck says that Athanasius understood, Athanasius who defended the doctrinity, through the whole fourth century. He understood better than any of his contemporaries that Christianity stands or falls with the confession of the deity of Christ Christ and of the Trinity. And then he says, in the confession of the Trinity throbs the heart of the Christian religion. Every error results from or upon deeper, deeper reflection may be traced to a wrong view of this doctrine. So I think the doctrine of the Trinity is very, very important. When we lose it, we ultimately lose the Christian faith. Okay, now, we say, okay, we have three persons, one God, but then someone might come and say, okay, Wayne, okay, I agree with you up to this point, and I agree with the Nicene Creed, but then what are the differences between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What are the distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, the persons of the Trinity have different primary, primary functions in relating to the world. Sometimes people have called this the economy of the Trinity or the economic work of the Trinity. Um, not economic having to do with money, but having to do with stewardship of activities. First, in creation. Look at this. John 1, 3. All things were made through him. Who is the him? It's Jesus. It's John 1 is talking about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the picture is always this, and we're going to find several verses this way. It's that the Father creates through the Son, and here's the world. And the Son is the creative, powerful Word of God who brings the universe into existence, but it's the Father through The Father initiates and creates through the Son. That does two things. It gives the Father primacy or leadership or an initiating role and the Son being an obedient or following role, uh, carrying out the will of the Father. And a number of us speak that way. By him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. That hints at the Father working through the Son and for him. And then what about the Holy Spirit? Well, after the sun creates, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It looks like the Holy Spirit has this a role of being present to sustain and maintain and manifest God's presence in the world that the Father planned and the Son created. So different activities. And then in redemption, or in our, in our salvation, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son does not send the Father to die for our sins. Right? The Holy Spirit doesn't send the Son to die for our sins. It's the Father sends and the Son comes. So there's a different role. Uh, and then Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his Son. And a lot of verses on this. Or Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's been sent from the Father. We've got this arrow again, the Father sending the Son into the world. Different ways of relating to the world. Um, uh, Hebrews 10, again, the Son says, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Or uh, then, then the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit into the world. So John fourteen twenty six, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. There's a role of the Holy Spirit being present and teaching us. And we had other verses about the Son sending the uh, Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit gives us new birth. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts 1.8. So the Holy Spirit has a different role. He didn't come to die for our sins, but he comes to empower us and to give us new life and new birth. That's different from what the Father does, ends the Son. So different activities. And then number two, the persons of the Trinity existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. They never began being Father, Son, and Spirit. And now um, you may say, good, I agree with that. Well, you might, but there are people, when I've written on this, there are people in the evangelical world who are challenging this today and who are writing against what I've written on this, and I think I might say something about that a little bit next week, but I think they're tampering with the doctrine of the Trinity that's been here for um, close to 2,000 years. Well, anyway, why do I think that these relationships were there before creation? Because Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Is that before creation? Yeah, it is. And and, and what who's choosing us? Father or son? The father is choosing us. He, the father chose us in him, which is Christ, if you look in the context. So before the of the world, the father thinks ahead and says, I'm going to choose Pammy. Um <laughs> uh, in Jesus before the foundation of the world. There's a, there's a choosing, but it's the Father who initiates that. Or, um, John 1, 5, we talked about this. All things were made through him, the Father creating through the Son. But that means before creation, there was a plan, and then the Father said to the Son, now it's time to create. And so uh, there's an eternal existing there. And there are other verses like this. Romans 8, 29, God the Father, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Again, the Father initiates, and it's conforming to the image of his Son. Before the creation of the world, he predestined us. The Father knew that the Son was going to come and die for our sins, and on that basis, he decided to save us. And he gave his Son. That means the Father had to be the Father before he could give the Son. So there's a difference in relationship. The only eternal distinction between the members of the Trinity is in the way that they relate to each other and to creation. And again, I'm just giving you some technical terms here. Um, Sorry about all these terms, but here they are. Um, Ontological equality. Ontological has to do with being. Equal in being, each one fully God. But economic subordination. And what I mean there is the Son is subordinate to the authority of the Father. The Holy Spirit is subordinate to the authority of the Father and the Son, so there's a difference in relationship. What? Okay, now that's good. Now, Clyde, what's the difference in that and subordinationism? Subordinationism says they have a different, a lesser being. They're not full. They're not as powerful. Not as eternal. Not as strong. Something like that. So that's the question. The difference between can we say they have different roles but not a lesser being okay and there's an application for our lives today it has to do with the whole culture or a lot of the culture disliking authority if you're the boss you're in charge that's good but if you're under somebody else and you answer to somebody else people think oh that's bad But the son has always been under the authority of the father, eternally. It doesn't make him any less God. So parents and children, children have to be subject to the authority of their parents. That doesn't mean the children are any less human or less persons. It just means when you say it's time to go to bed, they should go to bed. Okay? I'm looking at Robbie and Susie right now who have kids about that age. Uh, or, do your homework, it's time to do your homework. so um, or in a business situation, you can be subject to the authority of your boss, and that doesn't mean the boss is a more important person or more human or more fully human or something like that. It just means he has a different role and um, i i'm um, I'm subject to the authority of Daryl Delhousse who's president of the seminary now, and Steve Tracy, who's my academic dean. And if uh, they say, teach a class on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, do you know what I do? I teach a class on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. Does that mean that they are uh, more human than I am? No. I'm I'm a human being just like they are. Uh, does that mean they're more valuable in God's plan than I am? No, it just means we have different functions. And so um, so... The, the difference in role in the Trinity guarantees that you can have authority in human relationships that doesn't dehumanize people. It isn't demeaning. And it also the fact that the Son eternally was subject to the Father means that we can be subject to authority and it, not think of it as demeaning. Not think of it as dehumanizing. Not kind of re- rebel against it. And we aren't we under some kind of authority. whether the authority of the government or the authority of the elders of the church or something like that. Okay. Now here's the hard question. What is the relationship between the three persons and the being of God? So we've kind of skirted around this issue, but how can you have three persons and one being? So I know I've got John right here in the front row. John is one person, and Kathy is another person, and it's Kathy, and Tom, behind them, that's three persons. I can figure out three persons, but there are three different beings. John is a, is a being. What do I mean by a being? I mean something that exists. John is something that exists. He's a being. I can figure out three persons and three beings. Or I can figure out one being as one person. John is just one person. But I still can't get my head around this. Be one being and three persons. So, what is the relationship between the persons and the being? How to do that? It twisted when it came. That's a special deal. All right. Um, a God's being is not divided into three equal parts belonging to the three members of the Trinity. This would be a mistake saying God is one third the Father one-third the Son, and one-third the Holy Spirit. The problem is here that the Father is not fully God. He's just one-third God. He's not the whole being of God, so that doesn't work. B, the personal distinctions are not something added on to God's real being, like, okay, this center circle is what's really God, and then the Father is just a little bit of extra here and the Son is just a little bit of extra, and the Holy Spirit is a little bit of extra. That doesn't work, because then the Father is not fully God, and the Son is not fully God. The persons of the Trinity are not just three different ways of looking at the one being of God. That's modalism again, where it's just kind of an illusion. It's not really Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It just looks like that. Then you don't have three persons. Rather, there are three distinct persons... And the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. And I thought and thought and thought about how to draw this. And this is what I came up with, and it, it, it's, it helps a little bit, but, but it's not perfect, all right? If I say, well, what part of this circle is the Father? I have to say, well, it's this part and everything around the rest of the circle. And what part is the Son? It's this part of the circle and everything around the rest of the circle as well. And what part is the Holy Spirit? Well, it's this part of the circle, and then going around the circle, it's also everything else. So how much of of God is the Holy Spirit, the whole being of God? How much of God is the Son, the whole being of God? How much of God is the Father, the whole being of God? It's a mystery, yeah, it is. Um, Honestly, I don't think we know anything like this. Our experience of persons just isn't like that, um, because persons are separate beings. So can we understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Although the doctrine of the Trinity contains mystery, um, it is not correct to say that we can understand nothing about the Trinity. We can understand quite a bit. We can understand all the things we've talked about: being one being, each one being fully God. There's been three persons eternally existing, and they have different relationships among each other. And in fact, the only thing we know about the differences among the persons, the way they relate to each other, no difference in their being. Okay? Somehow there's still difference in relationship. But that's where we have to leave it. So now, so now you don't have the Nicene Creed here, but I thought we could, I thought we could just say this together, because uh, Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox churches have all agreed with this since uh, three twenty five and three eighty one a d have said, well, they they't said this is scripture, but they've said this is base, this is the this is the way we have to understand it, and it guards us against errors and and the um, uh, except for that phrase and from the sun for the for the eastern church. so so why don't we read this together? Um, John Yeah, I agree with it, except I think that this phrase only begotten. I agree with how they understand it in that it's begotten, not made, so it doesn't mean created. I think that they got off on a rabbit trail on the word begotten, which is kind of confusing. And I think it be it isn't the most helpful phrase to use. And modern translations of the Bible don't use only begotten anymore. That's a translation question. But I think that the substance of it is right, yes. Femi? Let's let me just see, yeah, Holy Catholic Church, that doesn't mean Roman Catholic, that means just universal church, yeah <laughs> okay, so I mean that, and what, what at that time it was a worldwide church, so that's what they meant, and we do believe that there's a worldwide church, even though we don't mean the Roman Catholic Church by that, <laughs> okay, should we read this? Try it. if you find something you don't want to say, just don't say it. <laughs> Okay. Um, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God. And he shall come again with glory, judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, and one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. Good. Okay, application in about two minutes here, and then we'll take some time for for conversation and questions. Uh, I already touched on this. Because God is unity and diversity in his one being, it gives the basis for unity and diversity in creation, and that one doesn't have to threaten the other. Uh, it gives the basis for God creating us male and female, that we're different, and yet um, and yet in marriage, the two shall become one flesh. There's unity and diversity in marriage. I'll talk about this, if I think, next week a little bit. 1 Corinthians eleven three, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I think that head means leader or authority. And I think Paul is saying there's a parallel. Just as the father is the head or the leader of the son, so in marriage the husband is the leader or the head of the wife. And people say, Wait a minute, how can they be equal in being or equal in dignity? And I say well, in the Trinity, the Father and Son are both fully God, and yet the Son is subject to the Father. So in marriage, the husband and wife can be fully human and fully valuable, but the wife can be subject to the leadership or authority of the husband. And so that's and that's the point at which people have been writing articles saying that I'm wrong on this, um, and I'll maybe get into a little bit of that next week. Um, but they, they go back and they try to mess up historic doctrine of the Trinity in order to argue with me, and I don't think that's a good idea. Um, uh, The body is one. This is in the church. One has many members, uh, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So we're different, uh, but we're united. And uh, Jews and Gentiles reconcile us both in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. So God brings unity out of diversity, Next week, maybe, I, I'm just, I'm not quite sure. I have to go to—I to I have to go out of town at the beginning of the week, and I, I'm not yet sure, and I have to work with Ben, who's helping me get these trends, these slides together. I might talk a little bit about the controversies over the doctrine of the Trinity that have come up in recent uh, years, um, including some criticism, in my view, which is, I think, the historic view of the church. Um, but if I don't do that, then I'll go on to start the doctrine of creation back... Uh, And and uh, uh, God creating the world. So that'll be. We'll take a few weeks on that. Okay. uh, Before we do this, uh, do you want? Now we've got. I've told myself stop at 9:15 so I can have 10 minutes of interaction with everybody. So what's your name? Dave. Dave. Would you comment on uh, the Gethsemane prayer of Jesus when he says, Let this cup pass from me, and then also he uh, says, not my will, but your will. There seems to be diversity of opinion there. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, let this cup pass from me. I just repeat that for the tape, uh, if it didn't get caught. Nevertheless, not uh, my will, but yours be done. Is there diversity of opinion? I think, hmm, wow. What you see in that is Jesus always wanting to do the will of the Father, but then he says, "If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to save human beings than me dying and bearing sin, then let it happen." Um, but I think he also knows yeah, where, yeah, he, that there wasn't going to be. And and what we get when we get to the person of Christ, I think we've got a human nature, divine nature in Christ. Oh, I should say, I should do this right here. What happened when Christ became man? What happened was... just get some of the clutter out of here. Um, what happened was there was a human nature and the person, person of Christ then forever was God and man, a newly created human nature. He was truly man and truly God in one person. That is absolutely remarkable. I think it's the most astounding thing that ever happened in the whole history of the world, that someone like us could be joined in one person with the divine nature of the Son, and not with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes... What is happening is Jesus is sometimes operating on the basis of human nature. He says, you know, like, he, like he's hungry, or he's tired, or he learns things. And so when he's praying to the Father, diversity of opinion. You see, you're saying, is there a diversity of opinion? I'm just kind of think what's... I think in regard to Jesus' human nature, he's saying, is there a way to avoid this, but... But um, what does he in his divine nature I think he knows, I think, that it can't be? Yeah, well, everything involved with it, uh, bearing sin. I, I'm not sure what to say, okay? What is happening at that point between the... S- his divine nature and the Father. Well, it hasn't happened yet. So he's saying, is there a way to do something else? Yeah, there's a there's a council. But doesn't he know that there isn't another way? That's the question. I'm not sure what to say. Okay, I'm going to have to leave it and think about it some more. Uh, Wayne, when you're talking about the uh, concept of economic subordination. Yep. Um the uh, the scripture arises in my mind about the sins against the Father and Son being forgiven, but sins against the Spirit of God yeah. being unforgivable. Yeah. And how would this would fit into this relationship between the three? Mm. Oh boy. This is the day for <laughs> questions I don't know how to answer. Um there's something about the Holy Spirit being the one who bears witness to the work of Christ. And if people reject that, there's no way, no other way to be saved. And that's something about the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's rejecting the only way of salvation. But I'm not sure I can say anything more about that right now. I'm trying to remember your name. Kremen, I was going to say. Okay. Okay, Mike. Yeah, this may be related to, again, the economic subordination But again, very similarly, there's a passage when uh, Christ says he doesn't know the time of his returning, only the Father knows again, so there seems to be a distinction in in the full knowledge, or at least his um, uh, passing, the authority of the knowledge to his Father. As his Father sent him the first time, the Father will send him the second time, so he seems to... And I don't know if that's also related to okay. the, the other question in terms of, of whether there was a distinction in the knowledge in Gethsemane about yeah. the possibilities. Okay. or. Good. That's helpful, and I, I have thought about that one a little bit. I think when Jesus says he doesn't know the time of his return, I think he's speaking in his human nature. See, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. If he, and he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's in Luke 2, and it's in Hebrews 5. So what we have is that Jesus learned when he was a little child. And his nature learned. But did he always know all things? Yes, if he's fully God. So that ultimately, and this didn't come until 451, the church at the Council of Chalcedon ended up with the idea that Jesus had two centers of consciousness, a human and a divine. And in his human consciousness, he learned things as an ordinary human being. But at any time he could call on his omniscience and know the thoughts of the Pharisees, know the hearts of all men, and, and have omniscience. Um, that is, that's a tricky kind of detailed thing, but but I, I think it does have to do with his, divine, his human nature then. Okay? Because, and the reason I'm not willing to go the other route of saying, well, being subject to the authority of the Father means he didn't know everything, even in his divine nature, then he's not omniscient, and then he's not God. So I... I I just, I'm not willing to give up any divine attributes for his divine nature. So. Okay, what else? Uh, Kathy? Um, in the garden, I always thought, you know, I always ask myself, when did Jesus actually take on the sins of the world? And I always pictured when he's asking that question, not my will but yours be done, yep. before their will was always the same. Yep. And so it, maybe at that point, could it have been that Christ took on the sin of the world and then the father could no longer look on that sin and there was a separation at that point because after that, that was when Christ, you know, they found him, they crucified him, they were in control before he'd always been in control and was always able to get out of the situations. Mm-hmm. So the question is, where did, when did he become sin? I think that um, a- anyway on the cross, uh, I'm not sure if it was before that or not, but it was leading up to that, that he was praying, of course. But on the cross he took on the sin of the world, or God counted him who knew no sin to be sin for us, Second Corinthians 5. I think that means that God counted against Jesus the guilt and the liability to punishment for sin, but I do not think it means that Jesus himself thought or committed anything sinful, so I don't think it means that he thought anything incorrect at that time or felt anything incorrect. Just that it was counted against him. I don't know if that helps. Right. I, I just think when he was, you know, he was praying so earnestly that his sweat became like blood. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, let me think about that and I'd come back next week. Mike, up here in the front. Okay. Yeah, Gene. Um, just going back to the statement uh, where you were reading from your book uh, about uh, Herman Babnik that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is the heart of Christianity. Um, why is it that, I guess, so much of the Protestant world has given up any creedal statements? And do are we missing something there? Uh, should it, uh, the, if the Trinity and the relationships and everything we've been talking about um, are so fundamental, is it... Uh, May appropriate try to work something more in. Mm. I'm not sure. This is another thing. I'm just not sure what to say there, Gene. Different people have, uh, you know, appreciate the value of creeds from time to time if they kind of affirm what we all believe. And so I see some value. They're not scripture, but they're useful, Mike. Yeah, Wayne, could you comment in the Nicene Creed on the uh, uh, comment about one baptism for the remission of sins? Uh, particularly how baptism is presented here at Scottsdale Bible Church. (laughs) Yeah, I cringed a little bit when I saw that, too. Um, I don't think that it meant baptism does remove sins. Uh, One baptism symbolizing the remission of sins or something like that would be how how I would safely understand it. Maybe that's why people don't do creeds, Gene, because there's stuff that in an ancient context wasn't any trouble and now might be trouble. Yeah. I, I sure don't think that baptism forgives sins. No, it, it symbolizes it. Yeah, Wayne? Uh, your diagram that you drew up there last with the broken lines connecting, yep. uh, I think with what we know from the Scripture, it, it symbolizes it very well because when things are created, visible and invisible, we know and can understand in modern science that the invisible are protons and are, make up our atoms and neutrons. Those are invisible. that make up the visible. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that most of those atoms are mostly space, and it would be very easy for them to combine. Hmm. As Daryl mentioned here, one uh, I think about almost a year ago, uh, there, is a, there is another dimension hmm. where Jesus walked into the room, through the door, etc. And I think that something that we're coming to, that those molecules can just combine very easily and become one. Okay, that's a scientific, I can't comment on that. I don't have the knowledge to do that, Wayne, but thanks for the scientific analogy. I'm really looking at the time. I wish I had quit earlier and a little more question time, but I think we should pray. And when I pray, <laughs> when I pray, then could you uh, just be be helpful to vacate a little more quickly? And if you want to talk, kind of get across the fence and, and talk out there, that would be good, or away from the fence. So let's uh, let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the excellence of who you are. Greater than anything we've experienced, genuinely persons, we can pray to you, Father, as the one who understands our needs, and we pray to you, Lord Jesus, as the one who has lived among us has been tempted as we are yet without sin, and who has died for our sins. And we pray to you and worship you, Holy Spirit, as the one who lives in us and empowers us and strengthens and guides us, and we give you thanks. And yet somehow, O Lord our God, we know that, that in three persons you are one God, and we, and we can pray to you as one God as well. And we cannot, we cannot figure this out ultimately. And so we bow before you and we worship you for the excellence of who you are far greater than we can understand in in great mystery and yet you've told us enough that we can, things that we believe firmly and truly help our faith and help us day by day we thank you for who you are for who you are and we worship and exalt you Father Son and Holy Spirit God three in one Amen See you next week